open with a poem by a friend of mine named Britt Posmer. This is called, We Belong. We belong to more than earth. We belong to more than earth. The causeless ground of rest swells through all activity. The causeless ground of rest swells through all activity. Abandon self-importance. Enter the paradox of prostration as flight. Only then will we embrace the love that we have been given for a time. Only then will we embrace the love we have been given for a time. The breast that feeds us, the home we gift, the home we make. So Dharma teachings describe human life as a grand bewilderment. Maybe more so than ever, it's not hard to have confidence in this perception. A grand bewilderment. We, the people running around, afraid and hurt and not knowing what we are, and clutching at whatever we can to provide physical security, sense of self, swallowing illusions, false hopes, unexamined beliefs. And we, the people running around afraid, hurt, and not knowing what we are, run the governments, the social institutions, the schools, the companies, the religions. And that we are here in this kind of place, I would guess that most of us feel that the Buddha's teaching is some kind of genuine beacon, something that clear and and true that shines through, shines in the midst of this grand uh, bewilderment. The grand bewilderment has a mechanism, it has a, a logic to it, there's a way it works. A key mechanism of the grand bewilderment is to look away, to stuff away, to turn away, to bury, to ignore the hurt, the fear, and the not knowing what one is. and play the games of the grand bewilderment. Some of them that the, the Buddha the Buddha named. Ignoring what ferocious change and death say about it all and just trying to have a good time. Or ignoring what ferocious change and death says about it all and trying to be one of the best through success. At least I can strive. At least I can climb the ladder. At least I won't be at the bottom. Ignoring what ferocious change and death says about it all and trying to be one of the good ones. What side should I be on where I can feel like I'm on the good side? One of the cool ones, one of the correct ones. Maybe the core mechanism of the grand bewilderment is just ignoring ferocious change and death. If we really look into that, if we really look into that, if we really live into that, we're less likely to play these kind of games.
We're less likely to get swept up in it. And that's why we're here. And anyway, all of these different strategies are actually painful because the fear, hurt, and not knowing what we are are still there as we play them. The games of the grand human bewilderment don't actually work. They're not intense enough to smother what's in our hearts. They're not consuming enough to actually distract us. And they tend to create more hurt and fear in not knowing what we are. And so it's a vicious circle. And so Buddha shines through the grand bewilderment saying all of this me, mine, one-sided self-cherishing, all these thoughts of I am this and I am not that, these are actually confused. The grand bewilderment puts the stamp of approval on them, encourages them. The Buddha does not. The Buddha says this is confusion, self-cherishing, dividing the world, dividing the self. These actually feed the fear and the hurt. Maybe the most beautiful thing about the Buddha's message is that these are optional. There is another option. You can opt out of the grand bewilderment. You can opt out. We start with non-harming and meditation. Cease acting from fear and hurt, and thus spreading fear and hurt. Cease giving credence and too much reality to all this me, mine, one-sided self versus other thoughts. Cease feeding and continuing the, the ongoing broadcast of self-centered thinking, self-absorbed thinking, past and future absorbed thinking. Not because we are not precious sentient beings, but because we are, we cease feeding those. So the path of, of non-harming meditation, this practice of session is not an abstraction that we've read about. It's not Buddhist theory. It's not sitting here trying to make an experience that matches some theory of Buddhism or other spirituality that we've read so that we can feel authenticated. It's not about fancy ideas. It's not an abstraction, it's this living pulse of the moment. The poet Machado said, Traveler, your footprints are the only road, nothing else. Traveler, there is no road, you make your own path as you walk. As you walk, you make your own road, and when you look back, you see the path that you will never travel again. 
traveler, there is no road, only a ship's wake on the sea. The Buddha's path is that this instant of body-mind infused with awareness is the path. This instant of body-mind, moment by moment, instant by instant of this body-mind infused with awareness is the path. Immersed in this scripture, this sutra, this koan, it can never be other than this body-mind at this instant. Of course, awareness of it can be shallower or deeper. And if we practice skillfully, we'll experience probably some shift from a shallower to a deeper or a more subtle awareness of this body-mind, which is the path. Nobody else's body-mind can be your path. Your future can't be your path. Your past body-mind can't be your path. We could say we enter the gate of ourselves, but how can we get more intimate with that which we already are? So the path made by walking, period after period, moment after moment of, let's say, mustering intimate awareness. Let's say uh, engaging, activating. I like the word activate. All of the words fall short, of course. The path made by walking appears in all sorts of ways that are intimate to us. They are intimate to you. Intimate with our past and future. Intimate with our body and senses. Intimate with our mind and intention. It's, it's not just that we are mustering mirror-like awareness, but we are mirrored in that mustering. So whatever arises, there's no mistake. This texture, this instant of body-mind is the path. It shouldn't be different than it is. I'm on my soapbox talking about the problem of discriminating mind. It whatever your it is, shouldn't be different than it is. It's not incorrectly appearing. It's perfectly mirroring. It's not even correctly appearing. That's in the same problematic discrimination. It's just that it's intimate to each of us. Discriminating mind, which from the Buddha's perspective, is a confused mind. Discriminating mind is basically a binary of good and bad. 
And we want to watch how this mind flashes continually. Say your practice is undivided whole body awareness. Discriminating mind says, well, my ankle and my toes and my knees are okay, but this elbow and the gurgling in my stomach and the itch on my skin are bad. And so awareness quivers. It doesn't actually relax. Our own being seems to be severed in two because there's the good part, there's the bad part. And when you have good and bad, you have wars of various kinds. When you take sides, you have the problems that inevitably come when things are divided into two. We want to watch how the discriminating mind flashes. This is the correct appearing. This is not the correct appearing. Chopping up life into the right and wrong experiences. Cold is bad. When cold comes, rather than intimate awareness, I'm thinking about how I can escape it. Warmth comes, I say, good, yes, now I can finally practice. I'm warm. Or maybe it's the opposite. Oatmeal, bad. Oatmeal, bad. through the generosity of others. Oatmeal, bad. Apples, good. Relaxed breath, good. Tight breath, bad. And it'd be fine if we lived in a world where one could move freely and openly and not have to encounter the bad, whatever we decided that is. People try to create these environments, of course. But because it's not possible to do that, all this does is keep creating this friction. We grind against, basically, ourselves. Because oatmeal and apple don't come with good or bad. Cold and hot don't come with good or bad. Pain and pleasure don't come with good and bad. That's, that's something we're doing. And it's something we don't have to do. Or we can let happen within a spacious awareness. Relaxed breath, good. Ah, oh, my practice is finally going well. Tight breath, ah, oh, bad, I'm doing something wrong. Not working, maybe next session. If it was just, if it only affected us, that would be sad. It could be tragic. I'm making light of this, but if we really look at discriminating mind, it has profoundly harmful effects. The one thing if it was just with us, but we, our mind is looking out and saying, oh, the way that guy does kinhin is good and the way she does it is bad. They bow good, I bow bad, or whatever. This strobing good-bad mind is intimate to us. It's not somebody else's responsibility to see what it is. And yet we are so much larger and freer. Hooked into it, we don't know how much larger and freer we are. We're kept from touching the deeper terrain 
that's made by walking. That's okay. No agitation, no peace. No peace, no agitation. On the other hand, we could say our practice is to renounce suffering. We have a direction. It's to renounce suffering. It is to drop, to divest from the corrupt mechanisms of mind that make suffering. Sometimes people think, I'm here to work on fill in the blank. And often embedded in this is a, a hope that Zen Buddhism will help me get rid of fill in the blank. It might, it might. If you're agitated, if you develop the skill of meditation, you might get peaceful. You might get rid of your agitation. But how will you get rid of the mind that wants to get rid of? Because that's the deeper issue. I'm here to work on the path made by walking means the texture of it moment by moment reveals. It presents, things appear. Sometimes ghosts of the past, which are not the past because if they appear, they're here. Sometimes times of positivity, of pleasant states, Sometimes ease, sometimes grinding, sometimes blandness, sometimes brightness. Sometimes it seems these are all mixed up together. Sometimes one flavor seems all consuming. We are entering the gate of ourselves, things appear. through our mustering awareness, the revelation. So an aspiration or a commitment to practice with fill in the blank, whatever it is, if you, if you have the sense that I need to work on X, to embrace and infuse it with awareness can be good. Sometimes I, when I'm teaching meditation and people who've practiced for a while begin to understand their particular uh, weak points in their practice. Like they notice that five minutes in, if there's a little bit of discomfort, they start fantasizing about the meal. And so before each period, you could make a prayer that may I be steadfast even when this discomfort arises. May I not give in to this sort of fantasy. You're priming yourselves to wisely, courageously meet it. 
So this kind of intentionality can be good. But our practice is not to look for anything. It seems like in the past, if you read the old texts, the teachers emphasized, don't look for enlightenment. Don't look for special states. Because so many people, they have spiritual longing in their hearts. They long for enlightenment. They long for spiritual states. The teachers say, don't look for it. Not because you won't taste it, but because the looking turns you away from yourself. But our culture is so psychologized, most of us are looking for traumas, or we're looking for childhood wounds, or we're looking for some deep emotion that validates that we're really doing the work. We might be disappointed if we sat in profound equanimity. <laughs> we might interpret it as boredom. <laughs> Don't look for anything. I'm not saying we, we meditate stupidly without, without keenness. There's a, there's a term in Tibetan Buddhism, metacognition. That is the aspect of the mind that notices when we're getting lazy or when we're trying too hard or whatever. Notices we're caught up in mishigas. That's different than looking for something. Don't look for something. When you look for something, the path becomes body-mind confused by looking for something other than I said the grand bewilderment is fueled by fears, hurts, and confusion about what we are. I believe that. I believe the Buddha is teaching that. But if they present themselves, we don't have to look for them, but if they present themselves, we embrace them. And then we become intimate with the noble truths the noble truth of suffering. The noble truth of suffering is not talking about, yes, the world doesn't please you, and therefore it's a suffering world. The Buddha didn't believe that there was some world out there that we were born into. The noble truth is that fear, that hurt, that confusion, and its source, what is it? One of the words in Tibetan Buddhism that's used sometimes interchangeably with bodhicitta or the bodhisattva path is tender or broken-heartedness. The desire, the passion, the commitment, the resolve to wake up out of the grand bewilderment springs from that, that brokenheartedness, the intimacy with the pain, not as an abstract like, oh, other people, other people are suffering. No. 
from how that is humming, singing in our own bodies, minds, and hearts. We don't need to look for this, but we may encounter it. If we encounter it, it's the noble truth of suffering. If we are willing to continually encounter it, it becomes the noble truth of the end of suffering. It becomes the Bodhisattva path. This body-mind, as it appears, moment by moment, is the path. So we let what we encounter draw us deeper, draw us more intimate. We can let brokenheartedness have a, a, a gravitas to it, a grounding effect, a sobering effect. But it's not suggested to let that become sorrow. It's not suggested to let that become a decision that the world is this way or that way. The brokenheartedness, and this is obviously just a word, and each person experiences this through their own body-mind, the only one you ever can experience. This tenderness, this truth of suffering within us sobers the mind that's drunk on right and wrong. We don't look for either afflictive emotions or uplifting states. They both come, they both seem to appear. So we're renouncing the mind that makes suffering. Is that something you can commit to? Moment by moment, to renounce the mind that makes suffering. And we're embracing it when it's already appeared. Is that something you can commit to? Earlier I mentioned a fruitful tension of opposites. That the spirit of Sashin is a, a, a wholehearted, a sincere mustering of non-distraction through whatever your method is. So if you're focusing on the Tanden, breath, expanding, contracting, that's your vehicle of wholeheartedness. If you're doing shikantaza, that's your vehicle of wholeheartedness. If it's a koan, if it's attuning to the flow of breath, if it's listening to sound. A sincere, edge-working intention, meaning try to deepen our ability to not be distracted. Alongside knowing we can't do it perfectly. Conditioned beings do nothing perfectly. 
We can't do it perfectly. These two are in parallel. These two can be a fruitful tension. So we're renouncing the mind that makes suffering. One suggestion is to aspire to drop unhelpful thoughts or attitudes like hot potatoes. Drop it. What we often give airtime to, what we often indulge because it makes for a good conversation or social media posting or whatever, whatever, whatever reason we do indulge unhelpful thoughts and attitudes, this is an invitation to drop it. It's like catch it at the first word of the thought. Oh, God, I'm such a hopeless, uh, and I can never do anything right. You kind of know what the thought is before it even finishes. Drop it at the I. Drop it at the am. Drop it at the hopeless. Drop it as soon as it even begins to sprout. Just drop it. Sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can't do that. Thankfully, thoughts drop themselves continually. Drop to interrupt unhelpful thoughts. To catch, to shift unhelpful stances, attitudes. In other words, we're invited to be resourceful in how we practice. To not be passive. The grand bewilderment is people letting mind happen to them. Why is it hard? Why is it difficult? Why is it difficult to put down that which is a very near cause to our own pain? Shouldn't that be the easiest thing in the world? Haven't I thought a thousand times a thought that's like a nail in my heart? How many times do I have to think it before I'm willing to just drop it? Why is this hard? Is there enthusiasm about this habit? Why not? If not, maybe we're indifferent to our own happiness. Maybe we're indifferent to our own awakening. Some teachers say the affliction that marks Modern American culture is indifference to suffering. That would be a fruitful discovery to see, yeah, in some way I'm indifferent to my own getting free. How do you respond to that? Maybe we have some belief about earning freedom later, becoming worthy of it, some belief of of penance. Most people definitely have some belief that thoughts have a validity simply because they have appeared. 
there's this contradiction. We feel that other people's thoughts that have appeared are totally invalid, but our thoughts that have appeared are valid. Why? It's a very strange double standard. Put down that which burns. Put down that which covers over your light. Put down that which estranges you from yourself. Put down that which closes your heart. Over and over and over. Be relentlessly devoted to this deep kind of happiness that the Buddha is inviting us into. I'm not saying we should be perfect and pure. We don't need to want that. That just alienates people. But as we sit in session this week, can we feel within us that desire to be free? To be free of indifference. The Buddhas and ancestors aren't lying. They say, we've played the games of the grand bewilderment so many times. How many countless moments of beings have gone through this dream of birth and death, death and birth as just pure struggle. Your inner struggle. Life has its rocky challenges. No way around that. Many people here, because I know lots of you, do have minds and hearts that are attuned and in deep care for the suffering of the world. But that deep attunement and caring about the suffering of the world so often becomes despair. It becomes bitterness. It becomes a kind of hopelessness. Or it can become a kind of escapism. You know, this place is effed. I'm out of here. When these thoughts come up, connect with them and let that raise this bodhisattva vow. Let it raise this impartial affection, the vow to liberate all beings at the core, the vow to not contribute, to not be another being amongst an ocean of beings afflicted by their own mind. Each time of not dividing self and not dividing the world, through all that mind does, analyzing, refusing, insisting on 
labeling and having an opinion about all of that. Each time of not dividing in this way is an interruption of the grand bewilderment. Each time of being peace is an interruption of the grand bewilderment. Each time of stripping mind naked to its basic space brightness. is an interruption of the grand bewilderment, at least in our lives. So may it be so over and over and over. Displacement of attention from the method, replacement. Displacement, replacement. And a world, a universe, frankly, each of us, of divisions becomes a world that is seamless, is unified, is healed. Thank you.